Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The words of Jeffrey Dahmer are voiced by an actor. Dahmer is serving 15 consecutive life sentences for the murders of 17 males. The most prolific slayer in the history of the state of Wisconsin. From 1978 to 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer murdered 17 men and boys. He cannibalized some of his victims, dismembered their bodies, and preyed on the vulnerable becoming one of the most depraved serial killers in American history. But what is the real story of this most unlikely of killers? And could this ever happen again? I'm criminal psychologist Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, Jeffrey Dahmer. Episode 3, Dahmer and the Chocolate Factory. It's mid-afternoon, September 1988, and Jeffrey Dahmer lies in wait near a local school on 25th Street, Milwaukee. He approaches a young East Asian immigrant who attends the Milwaukee School of Arts and asks if he'd like $50 to pose for some pictures. Dahmer tells the boy he has a new camera and would like to try it out. This is a world with an unsteady economy, poverty, and widespread racial tensions. It's the perfect time and place for a killer with an appetite for young men and boys of color to operate. And $50 is no small sum. The boy agrees. Back at Dahmer's new apartment in a rundown part of town, the boy is given a cup of coffee laced with sleeping pills. Dahmer watches as his victim drinks and insists the boy take off his clothes for the pictures. He then sexually assaults the minor. But before the drugs have had time to take hold, The boy, sensing he's in danger, makes his excuses and leaves. By the time the boy reaches home, the sleeping pills have made him confused, exhausted, and unable to stand. He falls unconscious and is taken to the hospital. He's diagnosed with a drug overdose. The police are called. 
never went after children. My interest was in older adults of bar age, and all of them that I met I thought were bar age. It doesn't take long for police to figure out where the boy has been attacked, and they manage to locate Jeffrey Dahmer's place of work. For the past four years, he's been working night shifts at a chocolate factory. The work is monotonous, but it gives Dahmer the income he needs to feed his drinking habit. At work, he is quiet, private, and does not socialize. It is here that police find him. In front of his colleagues, he is cuffed and arrested for second-degree sexual assault and enticing a child for immoral purposes. He's taken straight to jail. Dahmer's father, Lionel, spoke with the Mind of Monster team in 2020 about the arrest. I was just dumbfounded. I couldn't believe that he would do that. It was hard to believe, but I had to because I was told that it was true. It was terribly difficult. I just couldn't really deal with it uh, at that point. It was just devastating. It affected me very greatly. I did question him about it. What are you doing? What exactly did you think you were doing? Or why did you do it? No answer, no good answer at all. Jeff just would say something obtuse, like just wanted to do it or something, just a, a non-answer. Whatever he might insist in his own testimony, the facts do not lie. Jeffrey Dahmer is not only a murderer, but he's also a pedophile. And he has a track record in crimes involving minors. From exposing himself at the Wisconsin State Fair in 1982 to masturbating in front of two 12-year-olds in 1986, we should not forget that his third victim was just 14 years old. Back in jail, aside from having some of his criminal activities revealed, there's a pressing concern for Jeffrey Dahmer. His arrest was sudden and unexpected and gave him no time to hide the incriminating evidence within his new apartment. Along with Polaroid pictures of himself and the boy, he also has his fourth victim's skull. The detectives find the pictures, but miss the skull. They searched my apartment. Uh, I have an apartment on 24th Street, and they looked. They just didn't pull a towel up. That's why they didn't see the skull. It's the second occasion police are in breathing distance of Jeffrey Dahmer's murder victims. Dahmer is released on bail after a week, and his family hires a lawyer, Gerald Boyle, to represent him. While awaiting trial for the molestation of the boy, he's put through a series of psychological assessments. E. Michael McCann was Milwaukee's district attorney at the time. After the arrest, but before his trial, Dahmer undergoes a series of psychological assessments with Dr. Lodel and Dr. Goldfarb. And they state, quote, he's in need of long-term psychological treatment, a seriously disturbed young man, and that he, quote, must be considered impulsive and dangerous. What do you make of that? He was candid with Dr. Lodel, saying he's alienated and so on. If he opened up completely with him, he'd know his life would be over. He'd already killed three or four people. But if he had been perfectly candid with Dahmer, knew that'd be the end of his life. It did seem that he wanted help, and the, and the, the doctor recognized it. But by the ne then the second doctor saw him, and he wouldn't cooperate with Goldfarb at all. 
Gopher said his attitude has changed. He won't answer monosyllabic answers. He won't cooperate. Even between Lodl and Gofarb, the two psychiatrists, his attitude had changed. I think he thought about it and said, hell, I can't tell the truth because I'm done. I'll go to jail forever. I've already killed three or four men. That's the big quandary of Jeffrey Dahmer. He both asks for help, knows he needs the help, but is still self-protective enough to not risk his freedom for it. He never committed crimes in front of anybody because he'd go to jail. He thought about the risk. Is it worth the price? Is it worth the sexual desire and the risk? And he didn't want to take the risk. It was calculating. He went from 78 to 87 without a slaying. Of course, that shows control, too. On January 30th, 1989, the case goes to trial. Jeffrey Dahmer pleads guilty to the assault of a child, but claims he didn't know the drug was in the drink. The court finds him guilty. His sentencing is scheduled for May 1989. Until then, he's a free man. I was interested in finding the type. The Chippendale-type, good-looking, swimmers-type build, gymnast-type build. And it was not a case of hating them. It was just, I, uh, it was the only way I knew of to keep them there uh, and keep them with me. It gave me a sense of total control and increased the sexual thrill, I guess knowing that I had total control of them and that I could do with them as I wished. Uh, That was the motivation. It's March 25th, 1989, two months after Dahmer has been found guilty of assaulting a minor and two months before he is due to be sentenced. It's nighttime and three men congregate outside popular gay bar Le Cage, two of whom, Anthony Sears and Jeffrey Dahmer, seem to have made a connection. So the third agrees to drop them off at Dahmer's place. Sears is a 24-year-old aspiring model who works as a manager at a restaurant in Milwaukee. They drive to West Allis, but rather than stop at the house Dahmer shares with his grandmother, Dahmer insists he and Sears get dropped off a few blocks away on the corner of 56th Street and Lincoln in West Allis. The pair walk the rest of the way. In a 1991 interview, a cousin of Tony Sears describes his older relation. Tony was always not going. He's sociable and uh, friendly and, you know, uh, he's real goofy. He's the type of person that he said he would tell you to live, you know, don't rush life. Dennis Murphy was a detective within the Milwaukee police at the time of the murders. Can you tell me about Anthony Sears? Anthony Sears met... Dahmer at the Lacage uh, gay bar. He walked him to Grandma's house, and while there, he killed him. Then he disposed of the body. He painted his scalp and genitals, and he took that to work with him in his lunchbox, just to keep it near him. It doesn't take long for concerns to be raised. He's reported missing by a friend on March 29th, and his family tries to track him down. E. Michael McCann. Anthony, Tony Sears, what were your thoughts on that murder? We only know what happened from what Dahmer told us. His family was able to locate the okay, that he left with Dahmer, left the tavern, whatever it was. They were able to locate who drove him out. And Dahmer, this is how clever he was, he didn't drive to his house. 
whenever he took a cab, it was always blocks away. Again, this is part of why he wasn't insane. The guy said, well, this is where I dropped him off. It was a corner, a busy corner. Where do you go from there? Again, that was the wisdom, the savagery of Jeffrey Dahmer. So what we know later was blocks away from Dahmer's house. That's the thing that sticks out in my mind about Sears. His family loved him so much. These guys were loved. They lost, I mean, you can imagine all oh, some of them were fathers, brothers, that heartbreak for these families. And then the total disappearance. What happened to my son? He's gone, he's disappeared. And Tony disappeared. Anthony Sears' family files a missing persons report with the police, and theirs is not the only one. After making investigations on their own, the family of Stephen Toomey, Dahmer's second victim, files a report three months after he was last known to have been seen. Within days of his disappearance, the family of Dahmer's fourth victim, Richard Guerrero, files a report too. Along with the investigation in Ohio into Stephen Hicks, there are now four missing persons reports filed in Milwaukee, but they aren't being linked. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. 
To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. With full knowledge that he has Anthony Sears' head in his locker at work, Jeffrey Dahmer appears in court for his sentencing for sexually assaulting a minor. The court has heard the warnings of the psychologist that he's disturbed and must be considered impulsive and dangerous. The sentencing comes in. A year in prison and five years probation. During the prison term, however, he'll be allowed out on work release. I return to Annie Schwartz. How do you tell as a, as a law enforcement person you have an offense in a bubble, right? What is indicating to you in a crowded court system? So remember that when we're talking about the 1980s, we're talking about the cocaine as an epidemic, right? We're talking about record years for homicides in cities all over the country. This is the backdrop for our justice system at that time. In the course of talking about this case, when we talk about the near misses or we talk about the, you know, wow, he could have been, if we made the pin map, he could have been caught here, he could have been caught here. Yes, he could have in all of the contacts he had with law enforcement. And we can say that comfortably because now we can go back 30 something years, right? And we can say, wow, how did they not know that? Or wasn't that a red flag for them? You know, the Jeffrey Dahmer case and the times that he was able to evade law enforcement are not unlike the cases that we see now when we hear about a massacre or we hear about a mass shooting. Now have a suspect and we go back and we see the judge that gave them probation instead of prison time. All of those things. It is hindsight. It is not having the magic eight ball, evading law enforcement is why it takes so long to find serial killers because they're really good at it. While in prison, in an effort to have his sentence decreased, Jeffrey Dahmer writes to the judge expressing contrition for the assault on a minor, but not giving the slightest hint that there might have been even a darker story behind the attack. Sir? I have always believed that a man should be willing to assume responsibility for the mistakes that he makes in life. What I did was deplorable. The world has enough misery in it without my adding more to it. Unknown to Dahmer, as his release date gets closer, his father Lionel writes to the judge begging for help. Here, he reads out extracts from his letter to Judge William Gardner. My biggest concern as Jeff is released the first part of this month, is that the same situation may ensue. Every incident, including the most recent conviction for sex offense, has been associated with and initiated by alcohol in Jeff's case. I sincerely hope that you might intervene in some way to help my son who I love very much and for whom I want a better life, 
I think it's best to ensure to my relationship with Jeff that no one tell him of my efforts towards effective treatment. I do feel though that this may be our last chance to initiate something lasting and that you can hold the key. Sincerely, yours, Lionel Dahmer. Reflecting on the impact of the letter, Lionel had the following to say. I felt like this was the last chance that this could help Jeff, and I wanted to write to Judge Gardner to please do something now. Please help my son. They did not do anything. Nothing. Jeffrey Dahmer is released after serving 10 months. After a short time back with his grandmother, he moves into a new apartment, apartment 213 in a complex called the Oxford Apartments on North 25th Street in Milwaukee. He takes his collection of body parts with him, as well as a copy of Return of the Jedi, a film he's become obsessed with, identifying with the villain Emperor Palpatine so much that he starts wearing yellow contact lenses to channel the same kind of evil. Vernell Bass is the author of Across the Hall, and he was also a resident at the complex. What were the Oxford apartments and the surrounding neighborhood like? The Oxford apartments, the building itself was the most unique building in the area. And by when I say unique, I mean by it was clean and the security was very well kept. And the surrounding buildings, they were kind of run down. People, low-income people, um, drug dealing, prostitution. You go on, you, you just, you could just walk down the street and you would find bags of dope on the sidewalk from where somebody had to run from the police and they had to throw it. Bags of crack on the ground. It was that bad. When did you first notice or meet Jeffrey Dahmer? When I first noticed him, going in, in and out of this apartment to realize that he was living across the hall from me. My first impression of him was that, well, first of all, he was, he was clean cut and he wasn't a bad looking guy. And whenever I spoke to him, he would always give me a smile and return my greeting. And I think that after maybe a couple of weeks, we may, our first conversation may have been with him going in his apartment or coming out. We, we, we were standing at each other's doors and we started talking, you know, where I found out where he worked. And then I told him about my job. And then I think that's when he first introduced himself to me as Jeff. You know, he wasn't a dressy type fella. He'd wear jeans and maybe a flannel shirt and a jacket. You know, with his shirt open, you know, um, he was he was well cut, well groomed, with maybe loafers. You never saw him hanging out in front of the building talking to people or anything like that. Nothing like that. Did he seem unusual to any of the people around him? Okay, well, first of all, he was the only white guy in the building, so of course he was weird. You know, most black people think a guy being of his nature, yeah, we see that as being weird, but not a weirdo. 
you know, just weird, keeping to himself. But then again, it, it would be more like he, he would isolate himself to protect himself. He was robbed twice. The old desires have not gone away, and Dahmer is desperate for a new male body to possess. I want to get to the bottom of his motivation because the picture is complex. Were these desires beyond his control? I speak to psychiatrist Dr. Fred Berlin, who would go on to be a witness for the defense. God or nature put the sex drive into each and every one of us for a very important reason. That's preservation of the human race. You know, if, if I uh, don't eat, I die. If we all stopped having sex, the human race would disappear. So when that powerful biologically based drive that recurrently wants to be satisfied gets misdirected, for example, towards dead bodies, it still recurrently wants to be satisfied and it shouldn't take a mental health expert to appreciate how problematic that can be. Imagine if somebody told me, I have to go through life never having sex with a woman. That would be extremely difficult. Unfortunately, there's no reason for anyone to say that. But in Mr. Dahmer's case, we're telling him he can never in his life even once have sex with the only kind of partner that he desires having sex with. That is an extremely difficult thing for anybody to do, given what the sex drive is all about. What Dr. Fred Berlin describes here sounds like a kind of sexual death sentence. E. Michael McCann would go on to be the prosecuting attorney, and he highlights paraphilia. And by paraphilia, I mean abnormal, often criminal sexual desires to put forward a different argument. There's a lot of men who may want to do paraphilias. They want to get involved with the lady next door. That desire can be very strong. Some act on it foolishly, but that's desire. You don't have compulsion for sex. Who feels, oh, I've got to have sex. I don't want to. I don't want to, but i got to have sex. I, I've never met such a man that speaks that way. As you know, in the psychiatric manuals, DSM-3 and 4, they, they draw a distinction between compulsions and desires. Certain crimes are compulsions, some are not. Uh, paraphilias, sex desire, gambling, uh, drinking too much, those are not compulsions. They may be referred to that way. They're desires. You enjoy doing it. Compulsions are where people don't enjoy doing it. The hand washer, the person with, with the security desire has to keep locking the doors. They don't enjoy that. No, it's debilitating. Dahmer didn't have compulsions. He had desires. And that is a critical distinction between the paraphilia and what would ordinarily be. The use of the term compulsions is obviously very self-serving because he was going to argue that he didn't do it freely. In front. But every one of those murders, there was no compulsion. Nobody told him to do it. No, he, he wanted to do it. There was no push, oh my God, I don't feel safe unless I do it. I've got to wash my hands again. Nothing like that at all. He wanted to go out, grab somebody, drug them, sex with them for several hours and kill them. That was his desire. The psychology of this is fascinating. Jeffrey Dahmer was diagnosed with paraphilic disorder, which is a diagnosis given to individuals whose paraphilic behaviors escalate to a level that causes personal distress and or harm to others. The key distinction here is that paraphilia is the behavior and paraphilic disorder is a disorder resulting from the behavior becoming detrimental to the self or to others. While important from a psychological standpoint, the question of whether Jeffrey Dahmer's actions were within or beyond his control is of little consequence to those whose lives he's taking, and he's only just getting started. Within weeks of his release, Dahmer is on the hunt again. By May 20th, 1990, he finds Raymond Smith, who goes by the names Cash D and Ricky Beeks. 
Dahmer takes Smith to his new apartment, careful to use the back entrance so as to not arouse suspicion. As is Dahmer's way, he drugs Smith, then strangles him to death before dismembering his body and engaging in necrophilia. But he does something else with Smith, too. That would be uh, Rick Beeks. His, his nickname was Cash. Uh, he had it tattooed on his chest. He was around 30 years old. He was working the bars and stuff, male prostitute. That was the first time uh, with the heart. So, Fred, Dahmer begins to cannibalize his victims. What is going through his mind at this point? Mr. Dahmer began to engage in cannibalism well into the series of killings after he had kind of given up on being able to fight all of this. And at that point, he was starting to get rather bizarre ideas. And one of them was that if he ingested parts of the people he killed, that somehow they would keep him as they would be companions. They would live on through him. So a very disturbed way of thinking. But the cannibalism was his way of wanting to stay close to them and having a sense they would live on through him. Over the summer of 1990, Dahmer claims three more victims. Edward Smith, 28, Ernest Miller, 22, and David C. Thomas, 23. Does anyone realize there is a serial killer in town? Michael Takash is the director of the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project and was on the gay scene at the time. Going back to the bars in Milwaukee, would it have been easy for a predator to operate in a place like that? Absolutely. And sadly, it was all due to the prevalence of homophobia at the time. I mean, people lived very separate lives. And although Milwaukee was really on the forefront of gay rights going all the way back to 1961, when one of the first LGBT uprisings in the nation occurred in downtown Milwaukee, people might never know someone's real name. They just know the name that they were given. It was almost like theater of, of a way, um, the way that people conducted themselves in gay bars. They kind of took on a different personality. They took on another persona. They had different names and maybe different backstories. But at the same time that all that was happening, the other thing was that everyone was very transient. You might meet somebody and like you would talk to them and like have conversations with them and then you wouldn't see them again. And you would say, oh, whatever happened to that person? And, like they'll disappear for months, then they'll show up for, you know, as if nothing had ever happened. And that was just kind of the way that, that a destabilized, marginalized community operated. But because of that, because of that transience, that impermanence, that anonymity, that secrecy, it lent itself to people doing things that maybe they wouldn't share in their daylight life. You couldn't tell people where you were or what you were doing, or in some cases, who you really were. It's good for us to bring people back to the time and what it was like for people and how somebody could go missing without being reported in that community, especially if you don't even know the person's name. Well, that's exactly right. When people did start going missing, the first rumblings of this were just, you know, people asking, have you seen so-and-so? And people would be like, no, you know, that person hasn't been seen or heard from for a while. It got even more spooky as 
more and more people seem to be missing all at once. But at the same time, I mean, this is when the AIDS epidemic hit critical mass in Wisconsin. In the four years where Dahmer was most active, in which he claimed all but one of his victims. So there was this rapid fire of loss that was happening, and it was almost impossible for people to keep up with. There was just this great disappearing happening, and you couldn't really tell where somebody was unless somebody told you. If somebody went missing, it was now, not that they fell in love, found a job, moved back home. It was because they died. That sounds so dramatic. You know, when people ask, how did people not know? How did people not know that there was a serial killer at work? How did people not suspect that something was happening that might be tragic or, or violent? No one could have possibly anticipated something like Jeffrey Dahmer. No one could have possibly have seen that level of inhumanity coming, no matter how dark their mind was, no matter how dystopian or misanthropic, nobody could have seen that coming. Tragically, there would be much more loss to come. In the next episode, Jeffrey Dahmer's killing escalates, and I explore how so many missing person reports were not being linked. Mind of a Monster, Jeffrey Dahmer, is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Rebecca Redil. Editor, Sirkin Nihat. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Our archive producer is Katia Lohm. Arrow Media's series producer is Gabrielle Nash, and executive producer is Stuart Pender. Jeffrey Dahmer is played by Andrew Groom. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.